All right, we want to welcome everyone to our call this evening. This is Reverend Ann Dunlap. I'm the um, Faith Coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, um, nationally. Um, I live in Denver, Colorado, um, ordained United Church of Christ pastor, um, do all kinds of stuff uh, in the work for racial justice and healing and different things um, in my work. And we're so excited to have all of y'all on this call. We know that lots of folks are joining in right now at the top of the hour. Um, so welcome, uh, welcome to all of you in this um, next in our series of training calls for our Community Safety for All campaign that Surge Faith has been running since November, um, asking faith and spiritual communities to examine um, our relationship to policing in particular um, and how we might um, invest in alternatives to policing um, to help keep everyone safe um, in our communities. Um, just a couple of notes as we get started. Um, uh, I think that everyone is set to be on mute, all of the participants, so there's not background noise while we're talking. Um, if there are other ac accessibility um, needs that folks have or, who are on the call, um, you can pop those into the chat box um, so we can make sure to, to hold those um, in consideration with you all. Um, we also want to remind folks um, there's... 60-some folks already on this call. We know who some of you are. We don't know who all of you are, which is which is great. So we want to just remind folks not to make assumptions about who's in the room with us. Um, you all can see us. We can't see you. Um, and so to just be mindful of that um, as you're listening um, and participating um, later on in the call. Um, it's, uh, it'll, it'll be late for the East Coast folks. Um, so we wanna remind you if you need to hop off before the end of the call, that's totally cool. Everybody who registered, which is all of you, if you're on this call, will get a recording um, afterwards. Uh, so if there's something that you miss or you wanna review or you wanna share it with your folks, um, you'll, you'll get a copy of that recording. Um, and I think that's about it on my end. I'm immensely ridiculously excited to have folks from soul force joining us tonight um soul force has done amazing work around christian supremacy for many many years and and i'm just i can't wait to hear what you all are going to present with uh to us this evening so i'm going to hand it over to to you to introduce yourselves and your work and to get us going so thank you All right. Um, maybe we'll go Alba Joss Haven, uh, just in terms of introducing ourselves and um, what is our investment in this topic today uh, for our workshop that we are calling um, The Snatchback, What to Do When Christian Supremacy is Stealing Your God. Hey, everyone. Um, my name is Alba Onofrio, Reverend Alba Onofrio. Uh, ordained in an interfaith congregation, um, but grew up Southern Baptist. So Christian supremacy is very close to my heart. I live in Western North Carolina, where I grew up uh, in Appalachian Mountains. And um, gosh, I feel really invested in Christian supremacy because I feel like it is the force that makes so much wrong that happens to all of our people uh, seem right. And uh, we are all very um, complicit in one way or another with those systems that have taught us wrong about what is right and what is good. And so I feel 
with all of my Southern Baptist fervor uh, that, that we have to um, decloak some of the tools that have been used to harm our people and learn how to reclaim them and our God. Um, and I am the spiritual strategist for Soulforce. And um, my moniker is Rev Sex. I do a lot of sexual ethics work. So um, it's really nice to meet all of y'all. And I'm delighted to be here. Uh, my name is Jas Mendez Nunez. Uh, I use they, them pronouns. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. I'm the director of programs and communications for Soulforce. Um, I come to this work and to this conversation being really invested in the question of policing, um, both coming from communities of queer and trans people and people of color who are impacted by heavy policing and, and uh, state surveillance, but also um, as a kid with two police officers in my immediate family, including my father. And so this question um, of what to do in this political moment and like, what do we do with our faith communities uh, and understanding Christian supremacy and the force that that wields in this uh, way of thinking imaginatively about the question of policing in our communities is real dear to me. And my name is Haven Heron. My pronouns are they and them. And I'm the executive director of Soul Force. And I care a whole lot about this conversation because I grew up in Texas and therefore the cultural and legal and political power of religion will never be lost on me. And more immediately in a felt kind of way, I have grown up in a family that uh, took the engagement with police um, quite lightly and have um, sought out armament and collecting of guns and really casting um, an imaginary around who is good and who is bad and who deserves protection and who needs to uh, be protected from. And uh, that's a, a narrative that I'm really invested in undoing. And I've seen how it colludes with Christian supremacy, even for folks in my family who not at all religious. Um, that stuff is alive and well in most of our lives because that's the water we swim in. So that's what brings us here together today. Um, I want to tell you all a little bit about Soul Force, um, but I want to say this with my face before I go to a slide presentation. Soul Force is an organization um, been around for 20 years, and we have always focused on thinking about the system and understanding the institutions that power the systems and saying that those are the problems because they are perpetuating the violence. Uh, we are not here to attack folks. We are not here to talk about individual people. Um, though, of course, the more power you have within a system, the more you might feel targeted um, by a pretty aggressive work that is simply informed by an unending desire for justice and collective liberation. So, Put that out there for folks to know just kind of a little bit right now uh, about our politics and the way that we work and think about doing the work of justice. Um, so I'm going to be the one managing the slideshow this evening and I'm going to um, try to toggle as much as we can between actually seeing faces and seeing slides so that it feels really human and connected. Uh, but I'll try to keep that smooth as possible. So I'm going to go to sharing my screen and then opening up our presentation.
So here we are, the snatchback. What to do when Christian supremacy is stealing your God. And then just a little bit about Soul Force. We talked about it some. Uh, founded in 1998, distinctly an LGBTQI organization, um, practitioners of nonviolent resistance, and foremost, we are excited about sabotaging Christian supremacy through three main things, radical political analysis, like we're doing here tonight with you all, spiritual healing, because we need strength for the journey, and strategic direct action, because we go to where the problem is and try to uproot it therein. So, that's for that. Joss. So, um, I am gonna be working on all things tech and media, probably alongside Anne as well. Um, but I wanted to just give y'all a brief, like how to connect virtually, um, and also how this space is going to move. And so this is the snatchback. Um, we are here, uh, particularly answering questions, um, and getting to like be in community with each other and trying to unravel some really hard questions, um, to be doing in faith communities. Uh, and so in order to do that, we're going to have to do that together, um, more than anything. And that requires participation. Um, so we really love the chat bar feature of zoom. And if y'all are, um, here on desktop or on the mobile app, you'll be able to participate as well. So please feel free to post answers to prompts that we ask questions to post your questions in real time in the chat bar. I'm your friendly face that will be monitoring everything that's happening there. Um, and also, I'm going to be on Twitter trying to capture some of the like most uh, exciting things that we're talking about to share out to the world beyond this webinar. Um, so if you want to also be on Twitter or if you want to follow the conversation, um, soulforce.org is the handle for soulforce on Twitter and show up for RJ, that's the number four, RJ, uh, is Serge's handle. And the hashtag that we're gonna be using for this specific conversation is one that we use often for soulforce programming called Religion of Empire. Um, and if you are having tech troubles, please feel free to get in the chat bar um, and uh, write specifically to myself and I will try to troubleshoot uh, anything that I can. Um, we have a video to share with you, but I also wanna ask that if y'all would be willing to, actually, let's just go ahead to the video. Avon? On it. Christian supremacy is what happens when systems of domination like white supremacy, like capitalism, like colonization, form a parasitic relationship with Christianity. It steals the social and political structures, the institutions, funding, social capital, and language of Christianity, and turns it into a connective tissue between these different forms of violence. And in the process, poisoning the religion itself. And if that isn't a case for intersectional justice, I don't know what is. Christian supremacy isn't Christianity. It's weaponized religion that targets LGBTQI people, people of color, women, and other marginalized folks. We work to connect the historical through line where Christianity has been forced to serve violence. The messages and tools that Christian supremacy uses are disguised in the stolen clothes of Christian morality, holiness, and righteousness. So we cannot underestimate the reach and depth of weaponized Christianity's power to cement those death-dealing forces in place. 
We have to be politically organized to fight for our liberation on those terms, but we must also commit to the spiritual and moral work of our liberation. Spiritual violence is closely related to Christian supremacy. It's what happens when authority mobilizes so-called morality to deny our sacred worth. And spiritual violence is physical violence. Because we carry that pain both at a cellular level because of our own lived experience and through the collective memory of our ancestral trauma. Those same messages and beliefs are used to justify murder and genocide against our peoples around the world every day. So Soul Force believes that we must work together across borders and at the intersections to decolonize our spirits and reclaim our bodies. We must infuse our movement work with spiritual healing and spiritual leadership. We must educate ourselves on Christian supremacy to strengthen the solidarity between affected peoples. We must expose the bankrupt theologies and policies of the institutions that govern our lives. We must reclaim the language and tools of our oppressors to flip power upside down and inside out. We must practice hospitality and care for one another. We must liberate each other through education, art, storytelling, pleasure, and direct action. At Soul Force, we are organizers, healers, and creators of new worlds. We are here to stop spiritual violence and sabotage Christian supremacy. Sabotage Christian supremacy. Sabotage Christian supremacy. Sabotage Christian supremacy. Sabotage Christian supremacy, y'all. Sabotage Christian supremacy. Sabotage Christian supremacy. So uh, that is our that our staff, um, uh, the whole smattering of all of our staff working on this really hard question, actually, which is what is Christian supremacy that we get asked all the time, every time we say we work on Christian supremacy. Um, and so we wanted to share that with y'all because um, I think that a lot of times we in faith communities get really sensitive about particularly like organizers, radicals, pushing hard against things that um, are within the realm of faith or Christianity in particular um, as the religion of power. And so Soul Force particularly chooses Christ uh, supremacy and Christianity as a specific area of focus because in this particular colonized land called the United States, uh, Christianity is a religion of power. And so we understand that in other places there are other faiths uh, that have power within those systems. And we work with comrades in the global South, um, particularly the Abrahamic faiths, um, to do lots of work together. But specifically, we target uh, Christian, uh, weaponized Christianity. And so it's really important for us, before we get into this conversation, um, you, you might be wondering why we're talking about this as it relates to the, to the conversation of policing and keeping our communities safe. And the point is um, that we want to be really clear about disentangling the kind of language, um, culture, sacred text, rhetoric that has been taken from a faith tradition community and used in the service of power and domination. And that, we say, is not actual the faith-based uh, ideas, concepts, lives of faith, of Christianity, but rather uh, using religious terms as a tool. And so we want to be really intentional about trying to separate and 
uh, as much as possible disentangle those things so that as people of faith, we can recognize when uh, our faith tradition or another faith tradition has been co-opted and is being used for, um, for purposes that are actually are totally contrary to our moral convictions as people of faith. Uh, so it's important to understand that as we go forward, because a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about the moralization of harm and violence is something that has, is not actually uh, native to our different faith traditions, but rather have been uh, co-opted and used to promote certain narratives, particularly around white supremacy, uh, um, the ideas of capitalism, empire, things like that. So, um, we wanted to start there because we understand that the moral, once we understand something to be wrong, we work hard to change it as people, as, particularly as people of faith and people of deep morals. So we want to be really clear that we trust um, that everyone on this call is here because you recognize that something is not right and we need to be doing something about that. And so part of what we're doing together is trying to disentangle uh, what is actually important and core to what we believe and our moral convictions, and then how those different messages get walked out that actually uh, make us complicit with walking out of ways of being in the world that are not actually in line with our moral convictions. Um, so we're really excited about this conversation, and we wanted to start there. Christian supremacy may be new to you. We encourage you to go to soulforce.org and look up more if you're excited about that particular language and concept. Um, and it's sharp for a reason. And so we're excited to be here. So now we want to ask y'all to share a little bit in the chat bar about where your investment is. Um, and I'm already seeing folks being really excited about the video and this concept of Christian supremacy. Um, and so keep going in the chat bar. Please keep the energy up and just tell us a little bit about where it is that you're coming from in this conversation. Why is it that you showed up and decided that you would spend your evening here with Surge and with Soulforce talking specifically about this, this question, this conversation? What do we do when Christian supremacy and white supremacy um, and these systems of violence are stealing away our God in the Christian tradition? Um, and... This was going to be a, a more interactive question. I invite y'all to like throughout the, I invite this question mostly as a grounding tool for your own self to be able to reflect on why it is a year here and carry that with you. But we're also excited about hearing. So please feel free like throughout however long it is you're thinking about it to just go ahead and share that in the chat bar. I also want to say it's really cool when people introduce, some folks have introduced themselves in the chat bar, and um, it's actually really wonderful since we can't see any of your faces. <laughs> it's really wonderful if folks have, um, if folks want to just take a second also at some point in the column, introduce yourself. Um, it's lovely to meet y'all online, even if we can't see your face. I see some of our old school Soulforce friends also, which is wonderful.
Yeah, so for folks on the phone, it's really awesome. Um, folks are filling up the chat bar. It's really wonderful. Um, some folks have talked about um, the, this concept of stealing God and how that resonates and other folks uh, around um, that idea. Um, the, I think the comment was um, that someone has friends who are very anti-Christianity um, and that they feel sad that good parts of Christianity have been lost because of the oppression. And so I want to just restate uh, again, for the record, part of why we name Christian supremacy as such is because we're trying to do exactly that thing, is help folks uh, work through the differences between the kind of religion that is co-op for the purposes of oppression and the kind of um, spiritual tradition that that actually centers a lot of faith, justice, healing, um, work. Well, while folks are still putting uh, stuff in the chat bar, that's super exciting and fun, and I'm delighted by that. I wanted to um, touch on a couple of examples of what we hear about uh, when questions around policing come up, and that isn't our primary area of work, but um, but because Christian supremacy moralizes um, lots of things, including uh, law enforcement, um, the legal system, uh, there's often times where we have that uh, come up. So I'm going to give you just two examples. The first one um, is actually what, uh, based on an email <laughs> that we got just today because we had sent out this webinar uh, through our email listserv also. And um, a longtime person who identifies with Soulforce wrote back and was um, grumpy with us, is a nice way to put it, because they were saying that um, we need to, there's not really a problem. There's no problem here that um, if the police are treated with respect, they will treat the person with respect. There actually isn't a concern around um, police overreach and um, that it's a matter of being respectful to police. And that's something that we actually hear a lot and um, I hear that a lot. And I think it's a great way for us to start trying to do some of the work of uh, decloaking Christian supremacy because a lot of times we say things or hear things and they don't quite feel right, but we don't really have a good response um, to what the underlying question is. So on this slide, we're, we're kind of organizing with here's kind of what the saying is. If you're respectful to a police officer, he will be respectful for you. And I use he intentionally there. Um, and so we want to decloak some of the hidden moral assumptions from that, that kind of framing. Uh, it presumes that the moral, that the justice system, the criminal justice system in particular, including the police as a force, as a unit, is inherently good. That justice is blind, uh, forgive the ableist language, that, that the system will right itself, that in and of itself it is good. Uh, it also, assumes that um, individual transgressions from police officers are uh, 
a few bad apples. That person was just a bad apple. But as a whole, the whole body is good. And I want to reinforce one more time. Haven already said it, but I want to say it again. We are not talking about individual people. We are trying to talk about systemic level, institutional level uh, concerns that we have based on trends, not based on individual people. Though, depending on where you exist in the hierarchy of power and how much power you have access to, you are more likely to feel like and be a direct target for direct action, for conversation, because we're at, trying to get at the system of power. So, um, for example, that idea allows for exceptions to the rule that police are good to have a few actors who are um, rogue, out of the system, unusual, use unusual force, that kind of thing. Um, but in general, it ha we, we hold this, this idea, holds the concept that if you are interacting with law enforcement, you must have done something wrong uh, or have been in an accident or something like that. But like, it presumes a lot of guilt. So what I have heard in my own family is, oh, that person got shot. They must have been doing something wrong. They must have been running away. They must have been a criminal. They must have been, they must have resisted arrest, uh, for example. The culpability lies with an individual person and each and every interaction rather than taking into an account uh, a whole, like a systemic trend or whole. Um, it also assumes that your bodily safety, that one's bodily safety, can be guaranteed or secured if one, you are innocent, that's kind of a prerequisite, you have to be innocent for you to be able to be kept safe. Uh, and two, you must be able to perform respect in a way that a law enforcement officer or a sheriff or whoever could understand. So for example, um, in, our, in our work, sometimes we've engaged in civil disobedience and even as someone who has light skin privilege, white passing sometimes, um, I looks very respectable in how I dress in general, have been told directly, if you wanted your rights, you shouldn't have gotten arrested, right? So it's the concept that if you engage at all, um, that there's something that you have done wrong. So that is very wrapped up in white supremacy, in cisgender privilege. Um, we know a lot of those things. Um, and the last thing it presumes is that criminals are only scared of getting caught, not of getting hurt or killed, right? So if someone runs, it's because they're guilty, not because they're scared. Um, because of the presumption that the, the system is overall good and positive and just and all those things. So what we're hoping to do throughout the, the, the course of this conversation is help us reframe the question. So for this person who wrote us today at Soulforce, some of the questions that we might ask to reframe that question is, for example, is there evidence of widespread trends based on bias within the justice system? What roles could those bias play in individual interactions? We may ask, instead of are they being respectful, we might ask, what is performing respect look like? What does that mean? And who might not have access or might not be able to perform those ways of showing respect, right? So somebody under the influence of drugs or alcohol, somebody who has mental, is in a mental health crisis, somebody who is in a physical emergency uh, kind of situation, someone who has been the victim of a violent engagement, right? There's lots of people who for fear or for capacity reasons 
might not be able to perform respect. And so does that mean that that person then deserves violence or harm to come to them? Um, another thing that we always talk about in Soul Force is power dynamics. So who has the power in the interaction between someone who is armed, uh, a police officer, for example, and someone else? What role might fear uh, of, of harm play in those interactions? How, when we are scared, what does that look like? And I want to really um, speak for this for just a second, because when we talk about the ways that people are not behaving respectfully or resisting arrest or those other kind of words that we use to explain away uh, police brutality, then we have to understand that we are actually um, dehumanizing the people who are having that experience because we are saying the only people who, what you're scared of is getting caught um, or going to jail rather than what you're scared of is that there is a person with a gun um, who might have race bias or cisgender bias um, or whatever the many forms of bias that we all kind of carry around with us in different forms. Um, so those are, that is one example. I have one more example that we, that we came up with to start us off the conversation. I hope that folks are continuing to put um, their own experiences that they're struggling with in your communities, uh, with your own family, with, in your own mind, um, around this concept of keeping everyone safe and policing. Because uh, oftentimes what we need to do is reframe uh, the questions that we're asking to make sure that we aren't being complicit with Christ with a Christian supremacist logic. Um, the biggest question is, but if I don't call the police, how do I keep myself safe? That is uh, <laughs> a really fantastic and hard question with no easy answers. There are lots of organizations who are doing amazing work on that, and we are not going to um, give you lots of alternatives on this call because we're specifically talking about uh, the role of moralizing uh, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, that kind of thing. But I do want to re, I want to kind of um, spend a little bit of time on the hidden moral assumptions of that and reframe the question for us as we have that conversation. Uh, so thinking about if I don't call the police, how am I supposed to keep myself or my children, uh, my family, my church safe? The, some of the moral assumptions in that are that there is imminent danger all around us. And uh, police in schools is a really good example of that. Re school resource officers, uh, that we need an armed police officer in schools in order to keep uh, our children safe. Um, and we know from data that school resource officers also often have race biased, class biased, things like that, who, who we often then figure out um, the criminalization of our youth in very early, at very early times, right? So this idea that there's danger all around us all the time, and therefore we have to be actively on guard at all times. Um, it assumes that we don't have the resources we need to keep ourselves and each other safe uh, without, without um, a police or military force. Most importantly, though, the question of how am I supposed to keep myself safe or my family safe, um, it has a presumption that there are good people and there are bad people. And then that, then if we continue to fall, pull that strand out a little bit more, who are the good people and, or criminals and who uh, are the bad people, right? Like where, where do we draw that line? Can a good person do a bad thing? At what time do you switch over from being one to the other? 
because we know that um, the concept of goodness and badness, particularly in our in our criminal justice system, really is the narration, the 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 central key phrase of how people are sentenced, how people are arrested, what kinds of crimes people are arrested for, things like that. Um, so the, con the underlying moral assumption is that we need good people, i.e. guns, people with guns like police officers, um, soldiers, to take the risk on of dealing with bad people, stopping them, locking them up, putting them away, um, so that the rest of us don't have to have that kind of risk. Which then presumes that if we lock up all those bad people or deal with all those bad people in one way or another, that there will be an absence of crime. That crime actually stems from bad people rather than lack of resources or other things. So some of the reframing questions, when, when people try to get us to go down that path of like, but how do I keep myself safe? How do I keep my family safe? Um, there's, no, there's no confusion that it is that people feel unsafe and people are unsafe in different ways, right? Um, but we need to reframe and ask deeper questions around that also, like what does it mean to feel safe? Is that about bodily sovereignty, having say over what happens to my body, what I do with my body, where I put my body, and that my body isn't going to be violated? That's a great question, and I would argue that there are people in our country and in our communities who never actually get to experience bodily autonomy. Um, but that is an interesting um, understanding of what it means to feel safe. Another one is uh, being able to keep one's personal property. So that leads us to questions about capitalism and distribution of wealth and income. Um, or maybe it means peace and quiet, the idea that you get to have space and your, your space won't be interrupted. Um, so some of the questions we are thinking about is instead of uh, focusing on how do I keep myself safe, we might ask why do people commit crimes? What are the resources that uh, people lack um, that lead to crime? For example, wealth disparity or uh, access to jobs, access to economic opportunities, access to education, access to healthcare, access to mental health care, access to substance abuse, um, treatments and uh, family support systems like childcare, um, good schools and educational opportunities, right? So instead of focusing on the safe part, what, what is leading us to be unsafe is, an, is a different way to reframe that. And also kind of um, what are the resources that we lack to handle potential situations as they come up, right? Because our communities are full of people who have mediation kind of skills and experience. We all know folks who are the kind of go-betweens who help folks work out their, their um, problems or issues um, rather than resource. Um, how do we resource the situation, basically, is another way to think about that. Um, are other ways to come at this question of safe, like um, being in community and living interdependently. And so I think that just to finish this up before we move on, and I hope people continue to share some of the things that they're, um, that they're thinking about, but when we reframe the question to think about root causes of crime, rather than um, how do I keep myself safe, that forever starts linking how do we as a whole, whether that whole is a community, a state, a 
an entire society or a planet. Like, how do we always connect what the root causes are uh, to what the thing is that I desire? So part of what the disruption is that's happening always is something is turning over. We're turning over. And so thinking in that concept, we're hoping that as we move through the, the conversations with each other, um, that we'll be, and, and taking into account some of the history, that we'll be able to start turning over um, the ways in which we are asking questions or people are asking questions of us to see what are the hidden assumptions and what could we do to reframe the question. Joss, do we need to have a check-in? Because I can't see the chat bar. Do we need to have a check-in and let some other voices come in before we dive into just a bit of history to practice some, some decoding skills? Y'all who are listening out there in cyberspace and on your phones seem to really be in it with us. And so I think uh, y'all should go ahead, Haven, with that real good history lesson. Okay. So... Um, as we oh, here, come back here. So um, we know that there have been two sessions for the kind of dedicated cohort. And then this is an expanded workshop. And um, we thought it was useful to sort of revisit some of the history that has been discussed in very like broad sort of these are important trends to know um, in order to inform your understanding of like, how did we get here with the kind of white supremacist informed policing that we have. Um, and I, and we'll share this history, A, because it's just really good history to know, and B, because it's a great way to start practicing the skills of connecting the dots of how did Christian supremacy enter into this conversation in order to open the door to white supremacy into this system. Um, and so I'll give some broad brushstrokes, and I think that they'll paint a picture in case you are new to this conversation of how did we get here. So... Um, in the 1700s and 1800s in the South, there's a really distinct sort of evolution of policing. Um, and where policing came from is largely from slave patrols. And they were the forerunners of what became then more centralized and bureaucratized sorts of policing. But essentially it was um, hands for hire, uh, folks who were invested in creating a culture of terror and violence that would either um, catch uh, slaves who had freed themselves or essentially create such a culture of violence and terror that slaves would be um, persuaded not to attempt to, um, to leave, uh, leave the South or leave their plantation uh, or whether, wherever they were in slavery. Um, this uh, culture of policing was far more about the protection of property rather than the care of people. And that sort of distinction between is this about the owning class and is this about property protection or is this actually about well-being is a really distinction, a really important distinction that is always worth returning to of like what is in fact being protected here. And in the South in the 1700s and 1800s, uh, it was very much about seeing slaves as property and about property protection. Um, and throughout the South during this time, um, even into the Jim Crow era, policing evolved to match the legal environment of the times, but it continued to serve the exact same function. It just simply adapted so that it became slightly socially acceptable enough and just legal enough to pass muster. Um, and it was 
a policing system that simply uh, exists to serve the sort of class and race structures of the South, um, both during slavery, post-slavery, during Jim Crow. Um, and one of those, you know, sort of prime ways that you see the sort of class distinctions and race, racialized class distinctions coming up as a tool of policing and as a tool of terror is something like uh, vagrancy laws that equated, well, if you don't have a job, then you're not a good person. And then you become the face of social disorder, social distress, not being a part of society. Um, and then very much putting uh, a black face and a black body to the notion of people who don't belong, people who aren't good people, people who aren't a part of society as it is deemed uh, decent and orderly. Um, and that's one way that the 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 imagination of who is good and who is bad has been deeply influenced by uh, the policing that came up um, through the Southern sort of evolution of it. Um, more broadly in the United States, um, 1830s, urbanization, industrialization. Um, this took place both in the South and the North, um, but is somewhat distinct uh, from how exactly the sort of birth of policing, particularly in the South. Um, and what we've got are folks essentially for hire. Um, they are strong in using violence in order to control society. These are not sort of nice bureaucracies where people have been recruited and trained and vetted. Uh, these are folks for hire who come in and do the dirty work and are very much in the pockets of business, elected officials, and again, there to serve you know, the maintenance of property, uh, the maintenance of capitalism, of uh, social order as determined by the merchant and owning class that says people who go to work and who go to bed at night and are part of nuclear families, that's what's determined good because that's what serves our companies and our working and our factories. Um, so what's happening in the cities during this urbanization and industrialization, a lot of mob violence against um, newer immigrants and black people. And you've got the threat of disorder, and I'm putting that in quotes, and I'm saying that out loud for the folks who are dialing in by phone, um, as evidenced also in quotes by sex workers and alcohol. So now that people are moving to the cities, for the first time they're seeing these quote unquote vices, and they can't but not equate that with that is immoral, that is socially disorderly, we are not, and therefore we're descending into chaos. Because it's the first time that some people are seeing that right up close in front. Now, be mindful of the fact that the people, the own class, the capitalists in this sort of industrialist um, urban setting, they're the ones who are both industries of alcohol and sex workers and other sorts of quote unquote vices. And then they criminalize it. And then they are making money off of those industries, both in the selling and in the criminalization of. Um, so you've got a deep influence of merchant factory owner class defining what social control looks like, um, engaged in a lot of riot breaking and busting up unions, um, and essentially, again, creating the imaginary around people who don't work, people who can't work. These are the people who are defined as the dangerous classes. And again, that is a very racialized, that is a very gendered kind of concept, that is a very classed kind of concept um, that is serving them well, because then it, it is sort of a... It, snake eating its tail in terms of reifying and blessing the police to continue uh, doing, bringing that kind of violence into neighborhoods, demonizing people um, and arresting them and ticketing them um, because they've already been deemed less than human. 
Uh, in the 1900s, you've got a whole lot of corruption going on and then a sort of, and lots of different gestures at sort of cleaning it up. Um, the police are notoriously corrupt. They are in pockets with elections, with organized crime, with vice profits. Um, it's just simply the, the evolution of, of what was created during the 1830s. Um, and so they're just seen as kind of roving bands or seen as violent. They are not seen as the good guys. They are not particularly seen as uh, saviors. They're not people you're going to call to protect you. They are people to be avoided or managed or utilized as a tool to serve certain sort of capitalist interests. Um, later in the 1950s and 60s, you start to see a lot of kind of writing and academic work around what would it look like to professionalize the police? And how might we give this some bureaucracy and some process around recruitment and training to make it look um, and appear uh, more sort of quote unquote civilized, um, to bring some sort of order to even the police that had just somewhat gone off the deep end in terms of its unbridled monopoly on violence. Um, so with that sort of professionalization, um, they got a lot of broken windows policing and in particular kind of the stop and frisk. So police were sort of trying to um, affirm their place in society and assert their power and kind of and work to create what they deemed was social order by a lot of stop and frisk policing. And that's when you started to see police just injecting themselves into the daily lives of people far more so than ever before. It wasn't always the case that you had, um, you know, foot patrols, people coming into your home, people being on your block, people being in your house all the time. And police sort of started inserting themselves a lot more directly. This is happening at the same time as a lot of seven in the 1970s, a lot of uh, white flight from urban cities, um, a lot of fear of crime, a lot of fear from these sort of uh, trumped up visions of who are bad people and this imminent threat all of the time, um, which gutted the tax base, which then put the policing structure under duress. And so there was this incentive to really make the police look like the good guy, the police who ought to deserve um, all sorts of funding, ought to be deserving of all sorts of militarization and access to all the goodies that the military had left over in terms of tanks and guns um, and other sorts of uh, technology surveillance um, and weaponry. And so that's the sort of cleanup we got was that we got a whole lot more bureaucracy, a whole lot more funding, a whole lot more militarization, and this um, repainted picture of the police as being the savior, the good guy, the guy you can trust, um, the guy who serves the city, uh, the serve and protect motto. So that's sort of broad brush strokes of how did we get here and why when we think about uh, wanting to resist white supremacy, that must necessarily include the idea of how do we reframe the prioritization of police and what community safety looks like. Um, so why do I go through all of this history? Eh, it's a great history lesson. There's so many brilliant, beautiful writers. The folks who have given talks before um, to this cohort done phenomenal jobs. Dr. Gary Potter at East Kentucky University, amazing work, all sorts of folks. Um, uh, writing all sorts of good papers and, and making videos about um, this history and why it's important to understand it. But the reason that I bring it up today is because I want it to be sort of like a case study in decoding Christian supremacy, which we think is a really important skill. And so 
What I mean by that is how do you start to peel back the layers in your everyday conversations that you are having where you've got ethics and theologies and pop culture and histories of policing running together into like a really complicated mix. And here's one way you might practice the skill, exercise the muscles of decoding Christian supremacy. Um, in this example of sort of the 1960s, the professionalization and the sort of scrubbing the image of the police, um, you're bringing in respectability. Put a nice shine on it. Make it look legit. This professionalization creates hierarchy. It creates bureaucracy. It creates sort of the uh, a semblance of uh, military order. And it brings about very intentionally this idea of um, let's be, we're going to be trustworthy. You can trust us. You can call us. We'll take care of your children. We'll get your cat out of your tree. Uh, we're legitimate and we've been trained and, you know, you know, we, we can take care of everything. And then that starts to slide into sort of a sort of paternal figure of the police. Um, this notion of the police is being recast as the savior, the protector, the father figure, the good guy, um, the unquestionable moral rectitude of the police who will always do what is right when you call them to your neighborhood. And then finally, that then in turn lends itself into unchecked power. They've been given all of this trust. They have been treated as a civil institution uh, that bears funding, um, untold funding, that bears the right to have a monopoly to violence and access to military-grade equipment because we trust them so much. They're their father figure. They're going to save us, right? And when you start to have that layering upon layering from the respectability to taking on the trustworthy paternal father figure um, to this unchecked power, then what happens is you have the failure to examine the roots and embedded systems that have created the police that goes back all the way to the slave patrols and it gives a pass to pol the police and it is wrapped in a theology of violence that um, we can trust violence in the hands of these paternal father figures, these saviors, these white men who will protect us. And it's a theology that says that violence that begets order is purifying and necessary to achieve good. And that's how Christian supremacy opens up the doorway into injecting white supremacy into the system of policing. And so when you are thinking about, do I call the police in this moment? <laughs> we are hoping that this is the kind of conversation that you are having with yourself and with your community around what is it that we are co-signing? What are, what are our ethics that are work here, at work here? If we're not gonna buy into the theology of paternal white father figure savior who can wield violence to save us and purify ourselves um, through a sort of salvific suffering, what is our theology of safety and security? What are the ethics and theology that take us away from the prioritization of police into sort of other alternative strategies? We'll breathe for a second. Woo. Um, thank you, Haven, for all that. Um, yeah. I think it's really important to give ourselves a moment with that. Um, but also, as you're taking that moment to breathe, I want to reinforce one more time, um, actually many more times throughout the call, but again, right now, um, that 
it's really important to remember that this entire conversation is about systems, not about individual people, right? And so um, our family members, I, for example, have multiple family members that are a part of the um, law enforcement body. And I think it's really easy to get um, overwhelmed with the weight of the history that um, visits itself uh, on us when we come to consciousness. Um, one of the groups before uh, in an earlier webinar said, did this beautiful piece about to know in this country means that to not know, right? So it's intentional that we don't know the history of um, the militarization, for example, of law enforcement. Um, that's part of the invisibility of white supremacy and Christian supremacy that we have. And so once we start unearthing some of those things, it becomes very intense for many of us and um, sometimes very overwhelming. So I'm taking this as a public service announcement moment to remind us that this is about systems. So um, your great uncle Henry may be amazing and my nephew Paul might be awesome. Um, and they might also be women and they might also be people of color and all these other things. It isn't saying that all white men are terrible or that uh, all police um, that inflict harm or violence are white men. What it is saying is that we are, we must, we have a moral mandate to understand the roots of the systems that are causing harm. And so uh, it feels important to say the work that we are doing, the work that you are doing right now by just being on this very call is not charity work. It's not savior work for those poor brown people. Um, this is our work of um, soul and spirit. This is our calling as people of faith who are guided by systems of morality that all of us, all of us have been complicit with Christian supremacy and white supremacy as it is institutionalized in our system. And therefore it is all of our work individually and collectively uh, to rid our systems of the injustices and oppressions. And so this is lifelong work. It is very intense. So we take moments to breathe and recognize that we are engaging with systems of power that rely on us uh, not knowing and rely on us being unwilling to move through the overwhelm into action. And we believe firmly that we totally have the power collectively to transform the entire world. And we can do that, but we have to do the work of slogging through some of the knowing to the things that we can't unknow to the point where we are called in our spirits and in our minds and in our daily practices to live out a different narrative, a different morality in a different way. So um, we have all been violated by Christian supremacy. We've all been harmed by white supremacy and our work may look different, but together it's totally possible. So even as we continue to think through how Christian supremacy has been deployed in the service, how Christianity has been deployed in the service of white supremacy, um, we do that from a position of hope and faith, not from a position of uh, being defeatist or um, unable to change the narrative that exists right now. So I wanna take another moment to ask y'all to um, answer a question alongside us. Um, 
Our question is, where does white supremacy show up in the images, the symbols um, that we relate to the divine, to God, to Jesus? Um, what are the ways that white supremacy shows up in our faith communities and traditions? Um, now on the slide, there is the optional question of what is, what is their relationship to justice look like, but really honing into the question of like, what is, what in our faith communities and traditions, particularly in the Christian tradition, I want to focus in on. And so um, where are these messages of white supremacy embedded there? And we already got, let's see, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus. Yes, hell as prison you're sent to for sin. Crime is an image of God as prison warden. Ooh, yes, holding you in the light without much holding love in the darkness. White, male, binary of lightness, darkness being morally correlated to good and evil. The very idea of a savior, it takes agency away from us. The idea of white equaling purity. The Trinity is too often assumed to be male. The flag, the star-spangled banner, yes, yes. Jesus is presented as white, male, white. All of this shows up through depictions of white Jesus in painting and films. I'm reading from the chat bar for those of y'all on the phone. Oh, interesting. The Trinity, Karen shares, the Trinity started off as female, maiden, mother, and crone. Catherine says the elderly white male God with a beard. Kathy says most depictions or retellings of Jesus's oratory follow very white cultural oratory patterns. Wes says God is violent. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you, Rev. How about our Christmas cards with white Mary on that? What's that about? Allison says all the missionary stories we learned that were very imperialist. Uh-huh. Margaret, traditions that privilege men as clergy because Jesus was a dude. Michael says the absence of Jesus as a colonized man from our exegesis. Let's see, the cross was a symbol of ancient Roman domination. God bless America. Y'all are really coming through with some great examples. I'm having a hard time keeping up actually. The belief that black people were sons of ham, every stained glass window ever. <laughs> <laughs> Many Old Testament stories depict righteous violence to solve the problem of evil people. My child's preschool Bible had not only mostly white characters, but Mary had her hair in a short bob and had a string of pearls. What is right? That is something else. The concept of a new world and Christianity taken out of its context and applied to colonization. Women are only seen as side folks, listen to the snake, and bearing Jesus, but not women of agency. Can I lift up one that I think got skipped, which was uh, about personal salvation versus collective Salvation, I think that plays a big role when we're having conversations around justice in general because um, we really live into narratives of individual culpability and responsibility that goes back to the same hidden moral assumptions around uh, if people weren't breaking the law, they wouldn't get in trouble kind of idea that um, larger institutional, cultural, systemic 
domination and, and injustice doesn't have anything to do with crime. Crime is entirely about a personal uh, decision to make, to do something bad or do something wrong without consideration of what kind of justice is in the law in terms of what is criminalized and what is not in terms of who is convicted for crimes at what rates um, or even what are the social infrastructures that are lacking. So I just want to lift that up because it's really a big one in our work. I'd like to name that it is uh, to put a fine point on it. A lot of people have mentioned the masculinity of God and the masculinity of the Trinity and essentially like what is embedded in there and is a whole other kind of workshop, but which is to say that patriarchy loves white supremacy and vice versa. Um, and if that's, you know, I feel like that's just worth putting a nice fine point on. Um, so when you find yourself in a conversation with somebody saying, well, like, what does that have to do with white supremacy? There's a deep, long love affair between patriarchy and white supremacy. Okay. The white bread for communion, the white bread for communion. I never even thought of that. I'm so glad for the person who said that. That's amazing. Joss, since I can't see the chat bar, you cue me up when you want me to kind of do the connect the dots wrap up. Yes, come through, Haven. Okay, here I come. <laughs> okay, so just to put another fine point on something that came up a lot, um, and it's something that I think is probably often a conversation. If you want to talk about white Jesus, you're going to ruffle some feathers. Um, and what you're probably going to hear is, well, Imago Dei, and why can't I, you know, why can't Jesus be, be white like me or white like whomever? Um, and the truth is, like, he can, um, but it is not an isolated incident and it is not neutral. Um, and it's, a, it's an occurrence that happens in context. And it's not just uh, a scattershot dot of, like, it just was coincidental. It is part of an intentional trend. And I want to dive into that one because I think it's, a good baseline to start at for this conversation of when you are trying to connect the dots between what we do as a daily practice of faith and how might have white supremacy snuck into that and therefore how might that link to the ways that we engage with police. So white Jesus, image of God, the face of God on earth, not a neutral topic and it is not without power. So his skin color meant something then and it means something now. And so when somebody says, well, you know, Jesus can be any color, God, think of God in a multiplicity, ground that conversation back down into, but this one's white, and a whole lot of them are white, and let's talk about how that happened and why that happened. Um, because it, and the reason that it is problematic, or at least needs to be very well attended to and a power analysis done on it is that the question of white divinity, if Jesus is consistently represented as white to the near exclusion of other, sorry, skin tones uh, and racial identities, it starts to uh, conflate goodness and purity with access to God and whiteness. And that becomes deeply, deeply entangled and people may not be able to put their finger on it, but when they start to imagine who is good and who is bad, um, 
they may not realize that the image that has been ingrained in their mind uh, is one of whiteness. And then when you start to make divinity white, it's really just a tiny hop, skip and a jump to white supremacy. So when white supremacy is seen as uh, linked to the divine, uh, it has the more leverage to inject itself into our faith communities and even well beyond faith communities in order to rewrite that imagination of who is worthy of salvation, security, and grace. Um, innocence and criminalization are at the root of how policing works in this country. And since time immemorial, uh, the face of whiteness has been applied to that which is treated as innocent and worthy of grace, worthy of salvation, um, to put it in theological terms. Uh, and it has been by and large a black face that has been applied to that which is inherently criminalized, inherently not innocent, inherently uh, deserving of police intervention, engagement, and social control. Okay, golden nugget time. Um, the golden nugget for folks who are on the phone um, is the idea that what we believe about the divine or God impacts what we are able to hear and understand about what is good and what is evil, right? And so um, it feels really important to think about our faith traditions, whatever those may be, when we're thinking about what we do to the snatchback, right? So um, all the stuff around white supremacy that we've been working on and through connected with Christian supremacy is intense, it's deep. Um, the stuff that y'all know in this chat bar is blowing my mind and totally um, brilliant and amazing and um, I hope we're saving that somewhere so I can go back and look at it when I am not also looking at the facilitator's notes. But the point is, is that all of that isn't the end, right? Like that's not the end of the conversation. That's just the knowing what you can now never unknow now that you know it. And now we're shifting to the snatchback, which is what we call it. Once you have your Dakota ring for white Christian supremacy, you can no longer unknow what you see, right? So just like Margaret said, like posted a link about um, the history of racism and segregation around the individual communion cups. I will never look at an individual communion cup ever again the same way. That's just like, thanks for that, Margaret, like forever changed how that goes for me. Um, somebody else said something similar about white communion bread, right? So we are learning things that we can never unknow and uh, that is good in the sense that it can help fuel us for what is possible for change. Um, so we are hoping that this will be, uh, this next little bit will be helping to decode more so that from that place, we can think about what is the perspective that needs to change or the thinking processes or what is the hidden assumptions? What are the questions that I should be asking that my community of faith should be asking um, to think through uh, our, our imagery, our faith concepts from a place of ethics, from a place of um, 
combating Christian supremacy and contesting white supremacy wherever they need to be. Um, so the question then is, how would some of these conversations look different um, if we were framing them um, from the position of what would this look different if we were looking at it from a lens of love your neighbor, right? So um, I am wondering if I have skipped ahead. Joss, do you want to do the, I'm, I'm worried that I've skipped over and I saw that last question. And so I'm wondering if we should just go into that. Um, yeah, let's, let's go into the last question. Uh, and then I'll do my whole spiel about love your neighbor. Totally, totally. Okay. Um, and I think that this is especially appropriate because y'all really are just like providing all sorts of amazing knowledge and perspectives that are totally changing even like how we at Soul Force are thinking about things like communion cups. Um, the question is this, and this is going to be another like, please put this in the sidebar and we want to hear from y'all like, what are the narratives? What is the like snatchback narrative that you want to lift up for us from your faith tradition? And when we're talking about snatchback, this is the idea of like snatching back God from Christian supremacy, from white supremacy, the places where God has been stolen, which Rev Sex will talk more about. Um, but you know, like pointing to your faith tradition or to scripture or stories or cultural traditions, places where we can find hope to revise and rewrite that what is right now a very dominant and violent narrative around policing that is like state sanctioned and burgeoning and also sanctioned by the dominant narrative of Christianity in this moment. Yes. Thank you. So since we're doing the chat bar at the same time that we're talking, I think we might that that we should do that. Folks can respond as I'm giving it one example um, of which there are endless ways to resist Christian supremacy and snatch snatch Jesus back, snatch God back, whoever the divine is, um, or at least snatch it the hell away from Christian supremacy. Um, so we're thinking about in the same way of like criminals or there are bad people and there are good people and there there's this solid divide and therefore we need to protect the good people from the bad people and get rid of the bad people so that we're only left with good people and then everything will be like utopic and fine um but if we think about this concept of safety from a position of love your neighbor because in almost every major religion there is a concept of loving one's neighbor or of helping the poor or caring for the sick um, or including the marginalized, it is present in almost all of our religious traditions as a moral mandate, as something that we are required to do as people of faith and of morals, to, to, to extend out what we do to be able to include those who are excluded for whatever reason. Um, and so I'm thinking about uh, immigration, for example, and how white supremacy plays into some of our immigration policy, even our language around illegals um, or criminals or aliens or those awful kinds of uh, words that we hear thrown around, right? When, in fact, many of us who come from Abrahamic traditions uh, have a very specific uh, core foundational principle around 
providing refuge for the immigrant um, in our faith tradition, or talking about people as criminals, um, rather than talking about what are the resources that are either withheld from or denied to um, people that then we have as a result of that capitalist system, racist system, um, patriarchal system, we have all of these consequences that then lead people to break laws. And break laws, when I say that, I mean intentionally, like very broadly, right? Um, so instead of having conversations um, around some of the traditions, like for example, we talk about the civil rights backwards, we look backwards and say, oh my God, those people did such an amazing thing, which they did, but at the time, um, particularly early on, it was about these people who are breaking the law and causing a disturbance, right? And not about are the laws that they're breaking unjust. Um, and that is, that is the flip of the narrative that we can see now in hindsight that we need to be doing on a more regular basis. Like, what are the accesses to very real um, human needs that folks need around mental health counseling, around rehabilitation, around so social safety nets, like food and access to housing, um, public school education, opportunities for employment, things like that, that um, help us understand the conversation around policing and justice, not around a, a narrative of who is good and who is bad, but rather who has accesses, access to the things that they need. And who, and who do we need to be doing um, care for to equalize and bring back up um, some of the moral mandates that we have all been given as part of Abrahamic faith in particular to do that work um, of justice and um, meeting people's basic needs. So thinking about um, if we cared about peace, keeping the peace, right, law and order, if we were thinking about peacekeeping as providing resources, not sending armed soldiers, but rather helpers, healers, mediators, um, then our position on what um, uh, peacekeeping officers <laughs> would look like is a very different concept, right? It's about um, serving and protecting in that concept if we shift that to be to think about are we serving and protecting the most marginalized folks the people who have been most under the heel of the boot of oppression for the longest amount of time then that entire thing changes right and so we're really excited about all of the concepts that folks can come up with to push back particularly around the role of media and fear tactics right understanding god in a christian supremacist way promotes this idea of the divine as a judge, as a peacekeeper, as something that takes the world out of chaos and into order, as something that replaces evil with goodness, um, often through very violent means, right? And so when we get into the system of patriarchy, like Haven was talking about before, it's really important to understand how when we see God as uh, king, judge, ruler, the father who will spank your bottom if you aren't doing the right thing or send you to hell if you uh, don't do X, Y, or Z thing, that kind of coercive nature um, of God, then when we get to the point where we have state stand-ins for that same role, whether that is the president um, filtering down into police um, and law enforcement in general, 
then working against those systems is morally paralleled with pushing back against God. And because God's um, ultimate truth and authority and power are not able to be questioned in most of our faiths, particularly in Christian supremacy kind of logic, then therefore uh, pushing back against systems of power or their stand-ins, i.e. the president, i.e. the police um, or any kind of military, militarized, weaponized uh, human force is pushing back on a morality, on a patriotism that is equated with goodness, right? And so a lot of some of the trigger words that we get on a regular basis, like anarchy or chaos, um, the, the law and order narrative that just doesn't end, have folks automatically kind of respond to it like, oh yes, good is orderly, good is peaceful, good is quiet. Um, instead of asking, like, why are those people uprising in the street? Is that because there may be injustice here? That is a different reframe. Um, and our work is to try to snatch back that moral authority from Christian supremacy and empire and employ it for what our uh, faith traditions, our beliefs actually call us to do. So if we understood God as rather um, a force that demands justice as change from Octavia Butler's uh, parable of the sower, as a force of chaos as much as of peace, right? I'm thinking about like if uh, from a creationist perspective, right? Like the, the turning of the seasons, the uprooting, the pushing up of plants from the soil that bust the soil open and the gaudiness of the incredible diversity of plant species and animal species, right? Like that's wild. It's wild. And um, I have been known to say before that I believe God is a drag queen because of the wildly scandalous and gaudy uh, flora and fauna that ex exist on this planet, right? And so if we understood the Jesus that turns over the tables in the temple as much as the, the person, the God who creates form and neat little boxes uh, for gender, for example. If we understood um, the scandal of Jesus being in community with sex workers and women and dudes and them all living together and not being married and all those things, if we understand like the real scandal and um, lack of respectability that is in that, then we could understand a different possible way of understanding the divine that isn't as complicit with um, the status quo and with white supremacy and with Christian supremacy. So it's really important for us to do this practice like I see y'all doing on the chat bar, even though I haven't gotten to go deep into it yet. But I see y'all doing that work to remind ourselves over and over again so that we aren't, um, we don't fall prey to the trigger words and the, the calls to be complicit with injustice. Just so I do want to take a second to uh, lift up what's going on in the chat bar for those of y'all who can't see. Um, really amazing folks talking about the ways that churches are going in deep to the sanctuary movement and really taking care of our folks who are being actively targeted by um, Immigration Customs Enforcement officers. Um, we've got folks talking about... Um, 
how much the idea of welcoming and loving those from all and other lands, including ourselves, uh, is integral to their faith narrative in that snatchback work. Um, oh, Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? We use Micah 6.8 quite a lot at a in software space. Um, Let's see, there's uh, somebody, Tim says, this sounds a bit like the conversation Christian peacemaker teams have been having for quite a few years about solidarity and power analysis at the center of our peacemaking work around the world. Wonderful. To shift, Linda says, to shift what is developed as the central Christian theme of sin and redemption to align more closely with what Jesus taught, where the core theme is oppression and liberation. Yes, 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 yes. Um, G, which I love, says, I've started wishing people the peaceful darkness of God as opposed to the light. Um, Claude says, I think in Revelations, when it speaks to live by the sword means one will die by the sword, speaks to our choosing violence as a solution to our issues. We should understand we're calling violence upon ourselves as well. And that filtering down of a dominant God into policing structures happens every Sunday when churches contract with police to manage parking lots. Yes, that's definitely true. Wes says, I've been working to snatch back the book of Revelation. Ooh, good work. One particular passage is in chapter 18, verses 9 through 13, where there's a scathing critique of the Roman Empire because it was participating in slavery. Nice work, Wes. Haven, why don't you uh, go ahead and, and take on some of our wrap up before we move into our question and answer. Okay. So <clears throat> there are so many brilliant, beautiful organizations, Surge is working with a lot of them that are so skilled at the nuts and bolts of, <coughs> pardon me, um, here's, you know, 10 ways, 15 ways, 50 ways that one might want to reconsider uh, engaging with police and policing systems. Um, you already sent out a bunch of really great and illuminating uh, sorts of options um, in your FAQ where you're just like, oh, I didn't realize that like, that might be a moment where I can at least pause and think about, you know, do I call the police in that moment? Do I work with the police in that moment? Great stuff. <laughs> Equally, uh, there's organizations that are so skilled at thinking about um, all the beyond policing strategies. Um, and we wanna lift up just a few, uh, not framing ourselves as the experts in this um, and really humbly, uh, because we've got people who live in counties where there's 5,000 people. And we've got folks who are part of faith communities in dense urban areas. And your ways that you engage police, need to not engage police, might think of alternative strategies, they look so very different. They act necessarily so very different. Um, but we want to offer some suggested conversations that if you haven't had with your faith community, and it sounds like a lot of you have, um, might be the good precursor to forming some ethics and theologies around some of those alternative strategies. And the first question, which we've reframed into several times during this workshop is, what does safety mean to your community? 
if it's not, uh, it, you know, maybe it is the police in that moment. But if there's moments where calling the police has become a knee-jerk sort of reaction, a sort of catch-all default uh, definition of safety, what else could it mean? Does it look like more resources? Does it look like more mental health? Does it look like everybody has food? You know, all of those fit within some really great theological and ethical sort of foundations. Um, and so worth a conversation. Uh, the second question that we think is a really great conversation to have within faith communities in, is what are the community ethics of your congregation? I mean, what do you believe? There's a whole lot of, you know, we run on default around all kinds of things in this country. Um, and just checking in and, and lighting those up and saying, yes, we do in fact believe in that, or no, actually, like that doesn't in fact line with our theologies. Um, and how are your ethics informing um, your community safety management? Um, and how do you stay accountable to those ethics? Um, meaning, essentially, you know, are you living out all of your ethics and theologies? Have they been all put on the table? Have they been agreed upon? Is consent a part of that kind of conversation? Um, and how do you check back in with it so that you're living in your, your greatest power by really explicit ethics and theologies? Um, next question is, what, does your community have a safety plan? Um, you know, if you don't, what are the options for taking action if you feel you know, quote unquote, unsafe. And if you do, um, how did you get there? I'm really curious about that. And if folks want to put that in the chat bar, that's great. Um, because a lot of people are confronted with that question of, well, I know the number for the police, but I don't know who else to call. And there may be more or less options kind of ready made for you, depending on what area you live in. Um, but as Alba said, you know, Let's honor like the wealth of resources and skills we already have in our communities and at least create options for ourselves so that the police are not necessarily the first or maybe not the only one. Um, options are, are really good and there's lots of mediation strategies. Um, and then lastly, what, how does your congregation, your faith community engage in public policy? If there's one thing that I gleaned from reading all sorts of reports on policing and does it work and what's the relationship between, you know, criminality and incarceration and all that stuff, um, the things that kept coming up as these are part of long-term solutions in the estimation of some very skilled thinkers, um, it's universal health care. It's ending the war on drugs. Um, it's you know equitable transportation options. It's urban equity um, and creating you know it all that comes with that in terms of social and educational networks. Um, you know what does your faith community have to say about these things? Are you saying stuff about these things? Um, how might you find your ethical path or your theological path towards framing your message around those public policy issues? Um, if if your faith community leans that way um, and and can be politicized in that way, because those are also at the root of this policing question, the incarceration question, the white supremacy question. Do we get any feedback? On safety plans, got folks sharing. I can't see. Not the yet, but folks are probably working on some of the questions. Yeah. Um, oh, from Catherine says we have a church-wide agreement on seeking and living into love is first in a time of white supremacy and Christian hegemony. 
That's really cool. Yes, it would be awesome if you could share that, Catherine. Thank you. We propose creating a heal, repair, and transform fund and to make decisions about the use of the FCCO, First Congregational Church of Oakland, building and lands that help FCCO learn, heal, and act alongside and in relationship with others to undo the legacy and current practice of white supremacy and Christian hegemony. Ooh, yes. So many snaps and hand sparkles for amazing congregation work that's happening in the world. Please keep sharing, y'all. Um, I think that it's a great time actually to move into the questions that have been um, accumulating in the sidebar. Um, I'll read them, and then if any of the panelists want to answer the question, um, we can just y'all unmute yourselves and, and answer. Linda Crockett, if you're still on the call, hi. Uh, Linda says, what was the role of clergy and other church leaders during the 1830s and beyond in terms of social control? And so this question came up when you were offering the history um, background haven. So if you wanted to start off. Mm -hmm. You know, um, not being an absolute expert on this, it's a question that I want to research, but from what I was gleaning is that um, you certainly had uh, the churches putting out their definition of what social order and social good look like. And then you also had the police putting out their own definition. And theirs was very much informed by... Um, what was happening sort of more economically and racially in the city rather than being uh, a strong relationship between uh, church and sort of um, state, state violence, state power in, in the form of the police, uh, which was scantily even knitted into sort of state and governmental structures at that moment. Um, it became, I think, a tighter relationship as I read it, um, a tighter relationship when you, uh, when they started legislating more morality, like, um, Prohibition is a, is a big conversation and a big, <laughs> sorry, uh, uh, moment um, in the sort of urban setting uh, where the control of alcohol and um, other sort of quote unquote, uh, you know, sort of vice industries that, that worked in, in uh, cahoots with that. That is where there was a lot of alignment between churches and um, police. The other thing I wanted to mention around that is um, the during like industrial revolution times, um, it, it is very well attested to particularly um, in the New England area, but really all over in which in order to get a job at a factory, one had to be in good standing with their church. Um, and so in that, in those kinds of structures, you have a certain understanding that a good, a good worker, someone who is worthy of a job, is someone who uh, goes to church regularly. And therefore, in the concepts and structures of Christian supremacy and this idea, particularly a white supremacist notion of who God is and that order from chaos and um, obedience and submission to um, systems of patriarchal authority become the norm. And in that regard, um, I've read some really uh, interesting letters um, that are surfacing from like factory owners that are talking about how 
the workers, not only do they show up on time because it's like being a good worker is considered uh, morally superior, but also because folks are more, they more are more respectful of authority. They listen to authority. Um, and so particularly in the beginning of the industrial revolution, when, um, factories were so dangerous and so unjust um, before the unions um, did much of anything because it was still so young. Uh, the idea that um, people who went to church and submitted to authority um, were the ones who were most able to um, suffer the abuses at the hands of the factory owners um, is really an important narrative to understand how we get narratives of goodness and badness related to people who have jobs and ableist kind of ideas around like um, being a good person um, means that you're a productive member of society, right? Like a, that your production, um, how much you work and produce is equated to your worth and your value and there, and that is inherently a moral narrative around who deserves to have access to what they need um, and who doesn't. Thanks, y'all. Our second question comes from Arthur Smith. They ask, what are some techniques or ways of identifying and understanding patterns in thought and behavior that are manifestations of Christian supremacy and white supremacy beyond just recognizing the things people say? That's such a good question. The first thing that came to mind, and I would love for y'all to jump in also, but the very first thing that came to mind um, in Soulforce, we, um, one of our brilliant uh, fellowship participants, um, Cece Kalen said, ask one time a question around um, a little story. So showing the dog whistle, the like column response of white supremacy and Christian supremacy, and this one's in terms of capitalism. Um, but we were talking about the story of teach a man to fish, right? Uh, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for the rest of his life, that kind of concept, right? We hear that, that different versions of that often um, in the like bootstraps narrative. And, um, and what CC was helping us uh, piece out is how does that look different if your grandmother takes you with a fishing pole down to the river and says, boy, I'm going to teach you how to fish so that you can feed yourself when you're hungry. That's a really diff. that's, that's a, that what comes to mind when I think about teach a person to fish, right? It looks very different if a multinational corporation is dredging the seafloor, emptying all of the sea life and then saying, why they shouldn't have to pay taxes is because they are doing the work of fishing. And if other people want fish, they should go catch their own damn fish, right? So those are, that's the same narrative, but who it comes from and what it is used for is incredibly different. So for me, one of the first things to do when thinking about identifying Christian supremacy and white supremacy is understanding the context of what is happening as opposed to being like, oh yes, teach a man to fish. That's, that's a good idea. We should build up the skills of people who are undereducated so they can get a good job, right? As opposed to immediately jumping to the like, yes, that sounds like a moral uh, position. Rather think about whose mouth is that coming out of and who serves to benefit from that arrangement 
And does that live into the justice narratives? What power is already at play? So in Civil Wars, we always say no religion without a power analysis and no action without spirit. Those are the two things that live together. Spirit, our spiritual lives, our spiritual health and well-being, reclamation of spirit alongside action. But the same thing goes on the reverse of there doesn't get to be any kind of like, I just believe that way without a power analysis. Um, and so I'm thinking about the most intense way is understanding context by who is saying it, what are they saying, or what is the situation, what are the power dynamics at play, um, and understanding the narratives that we're just told over and over again. And anytime we hear those trigger words, like law and order, my immediate like ears go up and I'm like, I'm not assuming that you're, what you're saying is going to be good or positive, even though I've been trained my whole life as a Southern Baptist to understand that law and order is what God does from this chaotic evil world, right? So even just interrupting the thought patterns of like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And just taking a few more minutes to interrogate what's going on, but always a power analysis. Thank you, Rev. Uh, we got one more question in the chat bar. Haven from Kathy Lee. Haven, when did you say that the shift took place from seeing police as corrupt and to be avoided and viewing them as the good guys and to be trusted? Um, my grandpa was a St. Paul police officer from the late 30s to 1949 when he was killed in the line of duty. I was under the impression that the shift had happened before then, but if not, that really gives me more to think about in terms of his life. You know, I'm going to say that uh, exercising some flexibility, I think it probably happened in, at different paces and in different ways. Um, and, you know, uh, the police were coming out of intense relationships to organized crime, to electioneering, um, to the sort of owning class, merchant class, factory owners. Um, and so depending on, you know, how industrialized your city was, how deep in the pocket the police were, um, you know, that evolution away from basically being the muscle and the brawn uh, for moneyed personal interests, um, uh, and shifting that into a more, the more sort of professionalization, respectability, politics, um, and bureaucratizing of the police probably happened at different times. Um, but by and large, it's, it's happening um, during the first half of the century with a whole lot of writing happening around the 40s and 50s around um, a sort of uh, going through that codifying process of, you know, the official, the official tomes were now published on this, and this is the handbook of how we do this, and this is how we create hierarchy, this is how we uh, create vetting processes, recruitment processes. Um, so that's happening in the early, like the first 50 years of the 1900s. And then after that, that sets the foundation for being able to kind of uh, recreate those imaginary uh, narratives around like father protector police, the safe guy, the savior, the one who stands between us and all that is bad, um, who we kind of shift all of the labor and all of the work of being that buffer to. Um, that really picks up its speed in the 50s and 60s. Thank you for that, Haven. And thanks for everybody who asked questions. Um, a note uh, from 
Evelyn, they say, and also just to be clear, many, many parentheses, maybe all, large police departments are still very much central in organized crime and violence. Thank you for that extra note, Evelyn. Um, we have another question. How does this soul force hold that different symbols and theological concepts serve different roles, manifest differently in white communities versus black and POC Christian faith spaces? I think, I think certain theological concepts serve and align with white supremacy in white churches that don't in faith communities of color necessarily. I understand the need to do so given Christian hegemony and power, and I struggle with conversations that speak about Christianity broadly in this way as it collapses important differences between different communities calling themselves Christian. Very good question from Allison, and just to note to the panelists, we have five minutes left. Hmm. I'm happy to take it unless you want to, Haven. It's a great question. You go for it. Um, I, the part of the reason I love this question is because this was a question that I interrogated Haven with before I started at Salesforce. <laughs> so it feels really close to my heart. Um, one of the things I think is really important, uh, when we're doing, Salesforce uses a four step model, uh, to analyze power. Um, and that for us comes at, we, or we think about it in a four in a concept of four eyes, which comes out of um, actually anti-racism work from dismantling wor racism works in North Carolina that had functioned for many years, um, which is that power shows up uh, ideologically, which is soul force specialty, institutionally, i.e. systemically, interpersonally between people and individually, as in terms of our internalized privilege and um, also internalized um, oppression and trauma. And so I think it's really important to understand that, um, again, context and power is everything. So when we're talking about the concept of the promised land, um, as an example, if we're talking about um, the white settler colonial William Bradford on the ship um, talking about the promised land being uh, this continent that was already occupied by people uh, or kind of manifest destiny going westward. Um, saying that this is the promised land, i.e. the land of white people um, that is given to us by God um, for our domination, that is really different um, than someone else uh, claiming this land or this place that we're in as a promised land, as in a call to justice, as in a call to a land flow with milk and honey, for example, that comes out of a lot of communities of color. Um, the Balm of Gilead, for example. It's important to understand that Egypt um, in the Christian tradition and that trope of the Exodus, that Egypt um, may in fact be this land rather than the promised land. So holding those things together is always important and it's really, really important to understand who is saying it and what's at stake, right? So I think that's a, same, similar to the answer to the other question is really important. Um, but also I will say as a Latinx person who works in communities of color um, and faith communities, we have our own shit to do. The work isn't the same in white churches and POC churches, but it's equally intense. Uh, there is a lot of internalized um, 
trauma and racism that we hold within our communities. Um, black and brown solidarity is a real thing that we struggle with um, in every space that I've ever been in, queer and straight and mixed. Um, and so it's important not to just talk about, when we talk about Christian supremacy, we're talking about white Christian supremacy. And in fact, we often say white Christian supremacy um, because Christian supremacy visits, visits its violence on communities of color that are Christian in really different ways. Um, it is specifically the covering of white supremacy, but that does not mean that our churches and faith spaces are immune. Um, just because we are an oppressed group doesn't mean that we are immune to white supremacy getting all up in our theological practices that harm us and where we harm each other. So there's lots of work to be done there, but we talk about Christian supremacy specifically because we're talking about the Christianity of power, which is a white Christian supremacy in its culture. Thank you, Rev. Um, with one minute to spare, we hear, is there any writing soul force uses to describe this model of analysis? Um, and I can speak to that. Um, right now, all of our writing, uh, for the most part, is hosted either on our media page of our website or in our blog. Um, 2018, one of our New Year's resolutions for Soulforce is to get more writing and more webinars out into the world so that we can engage more with all the concepts that we've talked about on this call and others. And so please, if you will, um, if you're not already on our email list, join us. Um, and our Facebook and Twitter are out on our website. Um, I'm going to defer now to Anne to sort of talk about what next steps are and how we can connect with each other after the call and all of that. But I want to say thank you on behalf of Soulforce uh, and the rest of Soulforce can also say thank you. But this has been an amazing call. Thanks for listening and um, teaching us a lot, y'all. Thanks to, to all three of you for just an amazing um, time this evening. Um, I've, I've, I'm overwhelmed with the goodness that y'all have brought to us tonight. So just deeply, deeply grateful um, to, to all of you and to everyone who joined this call. Um, just thank you for engaging in this work and in these tough questions that, 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 that ask us to to, to make some hard choices and to do some hard things, but in the service of getting us all free. So we, we appreciate and send so much love to all of you for, for joining us. Um, just a reminder again that um, we will be sending out to everyone who registered a recording of this call um, uh, tomorrow. I think that that should go, go out. Um, and along with the recording will be some more resources, um, some information about our uh, Surge Faith campaign, Community Safety for All, and how to get more information about it and how to join if you feel like that your faith community or spiritual community is ready to join like right now. Um, we're still um, taking new communities up until January 22nd when we're going to start focusing in on that initial cohort. Um, or maybe you'll be ready uh, later in the spring when we open that back up again. But either way, um, there's a way, there's a Google form link. Um, some of you have already filled that out because <laughs> I posted it in the chat. Um, uh, so that is there um, and as well as some other uh, resources. Um, I'd love to lift up um, 
tonight our podcast that we do is Surge Faith, uh, particularly for white Christians called The Word is Resistance, um, where we've uh, had some podcasts that talked about, um, there's one that came to mind this evening was um, the one that we did on the Trinity, Trinity Sunday uh, back in June, um, and the problematics of uh, the Trinity being um, basically white and male, um, and baptizing everybody in the name of a white male God, how problematic that is. Um, and then our Christmas uh, group episode that, um, that we did a few weeks ago, where we're talking to each other about why, why the particularity of Jesus's identity has to matter if we really are serious as white folks about uh, the work of collective liberation. Um, so check all that out. Um, our next call uh, will be um, next week, actually, on January the 16th with uh, Crossroads, talking about how we can, we can actually identify uh, where white supremacy culture shows up inside our faith and spiritual institutions, so inside our churches, inside um, our religious institutions in that way, and in ways that we can begin to resist that. That was part of a, a question that somebody had um, along the way. We'll have two more um, open public calls after that, one on um, uh, addressing anti-Semitism and white supremacy, and then back with Soul Force again, um, I think in March, uh, early March, um, to do a deeper dive into the intersection of Christian supremacy and white supremacy. So we'll be happy to have you all back. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's it. Uh, deeply, deeply grateful to, to you all. Um, Joss and um, Alba and Haven. Um, thanks to Heather in the background, making sure all the tech runs smoothly. Thanks to everyone who joined. Um, and may you be blessed and uh, in this new year, new Gregorian calendar year anyway, um, in this work that we're all doing together to get us all free. So thanks and blessings to everyone and good night. <laughs>